0: Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 647. Slow down to go faster. This is Cars Yeah,
1: where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here
0: to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello automotive enthusiasts. I am so revved up and excited to introduce today's very special guest, Nick Candy. Nick, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Oh man, I got the
1: six point harness on. Don't worry, the crotch straps, I'm sorry, the anti-submarining straps are now installed. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Very nice. Well, I'll try to keep it between the rails so we don't need any of that <laughs> stuff. Uh, I'll be very careful today. Nick Candy is the vice chair and historian of the Aston Martin Owners Club East, serving Eastern Canada and the United States. He's the former editor of the Vantage Point magazine, an Aston Martin Club publication, and he's the principal of Candy and Company with over 30 years of expertise in international corporate planning, specializing in Latin American markets. Nick just published a new book co-authored with Stephen Archer titled The Aston Martin DB4GT, published by the Palawan Press in the United Kingdom. Oh my gosh, that's one of my favorite cars. This 544-page book with over 800 photographs and illustrations examines in detail the history of every DB4GT manufactured, including the design and development of the car. It is the definitive collector's book telling the brilliance and craftsmanship required to build these magnificent automobiles wow well nick i've told our listeners just a tiny bit about you would you please take a moment share a little bit more about your career a little bit about this book but we're going to get into that a little later and of course your passion for automobiles
1: okay thanks mark well i i love the podcast medium i mean you know it's just the right voice medium for me. Me too. <laughs> I've got a body made for radio. Yeah,
0: I'm right there with you, buddy.
1: <laughs> I've, I've got a face made for a full face helmet. <laughs> well, I'm a business guy, and I've done generally business, business marketing most of my career. I then, for a few years, uh, worked at the local Aston Martin dealership, which was my first experience doing retail, uh. which was a completely different world. But uh, I. Uh, had some great experience and and in my view today everything's a global market and if you don't understand that you live in a global marketplace uh, it's time to wake up and uh, and check the chinese containers coming into a port near you yes i was always amused when people would discover that my hobby was vintage sports car racing because i seem like that clark kent mild-mannered kind of fella <laughs> and i've been vintage racing since i had my first wheel to wheel event in uh, 1982, at my home track in Wisconsin at Road America. Oh. And took my uh, Aston Martin DB5 out in uh, the Chicago Historic Races of the era. Nice. And found myself dueling with Ferrari 250 GT Lusos and GT 350 Mustangs. Wow. And found myself actually faster than the dude in the, the Lusso and had great dicing with one of my buddies and his gt350 so
0: oh my gosh you are having some fun you know i did some vintage racing for about 12 years didn't drive anything as exotic as that i was in a lotus 18 formula junior and a Lola t290 sports racer oh my goodness you are having some fun we're going to have some fun as we go through your life's journey here but as we continue on that journey i always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote or a mantra, this is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your career success, and it's a really nice way to get those inspirational tires turning here on Cars Jazz. Yeah. So, Nick, take the wheel.
1: Uh, thanks, Mark. Curiously, 30-some years ago, I got the best advice at the Lime Rock Racetrack from a brilliant expat Brit named Tony Goodchild. His advice was, slow down to go faster. <laughs> yes. He said, slow down. Nobody goes into a turn faster than you are. The problem is other people are coming out of the turn faster. Yes. So pre-plan how you're going to get out of the turn. It's not how brave you are coming in. It's how quick you are coming out. And I found that kind of applies to a few business situations that when you think you ought to be diving in, you ought to be saying, let me analyze this and figure out just how we should be attacking this and what my exit strategy is for this next corner.
0: You know, it's a great analogy, and so true. I was told the same thing during racing school, slow down going into that corner so you can come out faster, and I've heard that from a lot of guests. That analogy taken into business, in your mind, really has a lot more to do about preparation, planning, understanding before you just dive headlong into something from a career standpoint, right? Indeed, and I'd also add research, uh, intelligence gathering, so. Yeah. Well, let's go back in time a little bit. I'd love for you to share a story that instigated your passion for cars. Is there a pivotal moment when you look back in your life that you realized, uh-oh, I'm a car guy? Well, curiously,
1: the, this came up in the last couple of months. Uh, as a kid, my brother and I would be building model cars for fun, and I started building model cars, and we were also intense readers. And I read a fascinating book on the Mexican road race, the Carrera Pan and in junior high, I decided we were supposed to do a writing assignment at our school, and so I wrote a little novelette, a short little piece, only a couple, few dozen pages, about the Mexican Road race. And my my hero, my protagonist, was a guy in a modified Corvette. And the title was something really corny and American, like Corvettes South of the Border. And I then shot pictures of sports cars in racing situations as I imagined them to be in the Mexican high desert, and I used the gravel pit at our farm in Wisconsin, which was my vision of what the Sonoran Desert might look like. That may seem really corny, but I did this piece, and my teacher said, Nick, this is actually very good. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. Uh, anyway uh, the upshot is that uh, many years went on and eventually i got my first sports car and got my first vehicle and then my first sports car and then uh, this last year one of my friends in elkhart lake wisconsin invited me to drive the career upon americana with him the the current mexican road race no way really
0: oh my gosh
1: and my wife said honey you gotta do it yes normally my wife is not always supportive about those foolish racing activities (laughs) yeah like like the year she discovered i spent more on tires than she had spent on shoes
0: uh yeah that's uh yeah i've been there done that (laughs) yep you've seen that movie oh yeah but anyway it turns
1: out the car uh my friend's car had run the carrera panamericana a couple of times but his crew chief said these brakes are not ready for prime time we're pushing it back till next year Uh, so uh, but my wife was saying what a beautiful coda! You wrote that piece as a kid, and now umpteen years later, why not do the physical thing? And I'm no stranger to Mexico. I've been in fifteen of Mexico's states, so um, it would, would have been an interesting experience. And let's see if it happens next year.
0: Well, I sure hope so. You know, I was coming back from the uh, Monterey weekend, and an old buddy of mine, his name's Mark as well, was on the plane, and he had this laptop and he was going through all the pictures because he participated in that race and just showing what it was like and he just said oh my gosh if you ever had an opportunity you got to do this it's it's incredible the people down in mexico are fantastic the fans the everything about it he said is just great just be careful because there's some nasty roads down there that yes. you get yourself in big trouble really fast so when you get an opportunity go down there have fun be careful most definitely well, Nick, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and have you share a huge challenge or a great failure that you faced along the way in your career. And of course, the most important part of these things that we encounter in life and business, what did they teach us? So take us to that painful time, walk us through it, and uh, help us understand how it helped you improve. Well, it, I was one of my, perhaps my best job. I headed international
1: operations for a nonprofit, the National Fire Protection Association here in Boston. It's a nonprofit with about 300-some employees, about $200 in revenues. And um, at the time, the CEO was doing a turnaround of the business, and the board of directors wanted us to expand globally. Not everybody in the management team thought we should do international stuff. So not everybody was on board. But long story short, my boss wanted it done, and so we moved forward. So there was a lot of resistance to doing stuff differently, uh, there was a lot of uh, concern about spending money on international stuff when there was the whole domestic market. Uh, anyway, it's um, uh, with some difficulty, I concluded that a way, since our job was to build a community in the various countries, particularly non-English-speaking countries, and our prime area of focus was Latin America, I I took a lesson from my car club experience. What's the most unifying element in a car club typically? The magazine, the quarterly, the newsletter, and today the website, the Facebook page, whatever social media may fit a a particular club. But the upshot is that I concluded that a magazine coming out three or four times a year was a way to create community, get a mailing list if you're going to put on an event in a given area, and help build membership and deliver news, gather news, and disseminate know-how. So it was not without some internal resistance, but I'm delighted to report it's now 2016, and that magazine's been going for, I don't know, I think it's about 20-plus years.
0: Wow. That is a huge challenge. I've been in that same situation in a business where change was directed by the CEO, and he had some upper-level management just not on board. And... Kind of uh, creating some challenges there and so forth for you. So what was what were some of the elements that you put into place to help overcome that challenge of that resistance to change, which is such a common thread in companies?
1: Well, one of my favorite expressions in that area is that pioneers take a lot of arrows. Yes. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, and what I found is that I rather than try to deal with the resistant people on the business side of the organization, on the marketing and so forth side, that we were invited to participate in presentations. And to the degree to which we could get sponsorship, or at least air travel covered, I found that the engineers found that the intellectual challenge of international experience was attractive. And so I was very blessed with some of these wonderful engineers who had their own personal charisma to help us build the Presence of this nonprofit mission oriented organization. The purpose of the organization was simple to save people from dying of fire, whether it's high rise buildings or airports or nightclubs or hotels uh, or any number of other settings. So basically, we were blessed with getting great support from the engineering team. And eventually, the sales and marketing domestic side came along and we were able to launch a new trade show and three-day conference in miami beach uh that um uh, was we we'd partnered with a chicago company by offloading some of the risk, some of the naysayers on the domestic business side you know didn't object too much and we went forward and for several years it was a very successful three-day conference and trade show but uh, for our partner it became they were also doing a related show in the security arena, and uh, unfortunately, that did not last as long as the magazine has. The magazine's still being published, and uh, but some of the other activities have morphed into other forms. So,
0: Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Let's shift gears and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share what I call a career aha moment. It's one of those times when the headlights come on and kind of illuminate your way for a new direction. Tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success.
1: Well, that's a... Um, I would refer back to that whole process of creating a global presence uh, for this organization. The, this nonprofit had uh, tried chapters 10, 20 years earlier, the, and so the conventional wisdom is, well, we tried that before, and it didn't work. Well, the old rejoinder to that is, well, it's not before any longer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not before anymore. Yeah And we ended up be- because people want to meet locally. We concluded that we needed a chapter mechanism, and we had a very active member in various committees who was really, really gets the credit for helping to create the chapter system, uh, starting in Mexico, which is the biggest Spanish speaking country in the world, and then going through other countries as uh, people wanted to have both a local and a global forum for discussing these technical issues. So I would say the aha moment was the fact that uh, creating a chapter system and letting them sort of go enough on their own that they can have the autonomy to address their nationalistic concerns uh, was a good thing to do, so
0: sounds like it absolutely. I would assume you've had a lot of proud moments in your career over the years, but is there one that stands out you'd like to share with us today? Oh, good question
1: since we're in a in a in a broadcast medium here mark a um uh i'm I'm reminded. Several years ago, we were doing our first seminar, three-day seminar, in Quito, Ecuador. And we were invited to talk on a morning drive-time radio show on the leading station, Radio Quito. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, well, why didn't you invite Jaime, who's from Colombia and speaks perfect Spanish, or Olga, who's from Panama and speaks perfect Spanish? And they said, no, Nick, we want you. (laughs) We want you with that sexy American accent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I assure you Mark that's the last time I've heard sexy in an American accent in the same sense.
0: It always uh, feels good at least once in your life.
1: <laughs> well, and 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 it was a great interview and yeah. it was uh, uh there had been a series of nightclub fires in Tony neighborhoods in various parts of the uh, the world including Latin America. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be a pretty good um pretty good and lively interview and the and, and the guys doing this early morning drive time br- seemed pretty happy so that was How fun. There was our our warm and fuzzy moment.
0: Absolutely. Sounds good. Well, let's go back in time again and talk about your first really special car. I know you've had a lot of cool cars in your life, but let's talk about the first one that really had a lot of meaning to you and maybe share a memory you have of that vehicle.
1: Well, there are two, actually, and and they were about the same time, which is uh, pretty. uh, my, My first vehicle that I owned, that I bought when I was 16 years old, was a 1932 Chevrolet fire engine. Fire engine? A fire engine. Oh, I just okay. thought <laughs> fire engines were interesting, and, and <laughs> I actually did comparison shopping. I looked at four fire engines, went with, uh, to look at one in Sheboygan Falls with, my, with one of my classmates who was in the cast at the time, and Susie was a good sport, and we went to look at this uh, 1928 Pursh, which was huge, unparkable in effect, and then looked at another one uh, up in the uh, northern uh, part of the state, and finally settle on one that i've been driv- driving past for years in a tiny town called Fillmore. Fillmore is smaller than it sounds actually anyway, so I gave that a home fifty two years ago, and um I brought it home, and my dad said, "This thing's a piece drove it and he said, "This thing's <laughs> a piece of junk. there are no brakes and 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 the the muffler's broken. I said, "Dad, it's only got twelve hundred and forty seven miles on it." <laughs> It's been to more picnics and fires. Yeah. yeah, it's a piece of junk. Well, anyway, I kept it and I still have it and it's You still have it. You still have it. I loaned it back to the Fillmore Fire Department for a little while, but oh my gosh. then I kinda of, kind of missed it. So
0: that's gotta be the most unique first car ever I've heard on this show. And I've heard a lot of interesting cars uh out of the past six hundred and forty six guests, but when you started with thirty two I figured, ah, deuce coupe, you know, some kind of hot rod or something like that. But Fire truck, very interesting.
1: Well, when you consider the, the at the time it was some three decades old, three plus decades old, that'd be like buying a nineteen seven or a nineteen eighties truck today, which don't look as different, relatively speaking. It was a lot of fun, and uh, I went on a few cosmic dates in it uh, without going <laughs> at all. All the details. Um, the <laughs> uh, I think a uh, great artist in my in my college, uh, Ellen Priest, ended up giving me for Christmas ozite carpeting uh, <laughs> to to keep the drafts from coming through the floorboards.
0: I see. <laughs> I see. Wow. Well, that's a unique one. Absolutely. <laughs> About the same era.
1: We'd gotten my dad interested in these funny sports cars. And one of my high, grade school buddies had dragged me to Alcart Lake rode America for the first time, and we got Dad interested. One night, he came home, and he announced that he would bought a car. Oh, okay. Well, before he died a few years ago, Dad said, Son, what's an old Ferrari like that worth? I said, Dad, you don't want to know.
0: Uh, what was it?
1: It was a 1958 Ferrari Testarossa.
0: Oh, no. Oh. Pontoon
1: Fender. Oh, no. Chassis number 0732. Uh oh. That had placed seventh at Le Mans in 1958 in American livery, white with blue stripes. A couple of Americans, uh, John Hughes, John Fitch, I believe, were driving it. Mm-hmm. And so we had it for a while, and it proved to be an obsolete car. And so yeah, he, yeah. he said, your mother made me get rid of it. <laughs> no, Dad. You sold it on the advice of Tom, so and so, because he wanted you to get the Ferrari Mondial with a Ford V8 shoehorned in that never ran right, It always overheated.
0: Oh yeah, that was a way better car,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that car is still alive. It's now in uh, in Arizona.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh huh. It's, it's known as the Fubar Ferrari, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's its nickname. But the uh, the the Testarossa, which was a fabulous car, and I must have waxed that. Um, car six times over the course of many months. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just a fabulous, beautiful thing. I I refer to that as the Paradise Lost Moment, and it was just a great car, and it's since been the subject of a monograph by a Swiss publisher, and the car now resides in Switzerland and did run in the Mille I think it was last year or 2014, so... Mm.
0: That leads me to my next question, is seller's remorse. Now, since that was your dad's car, we won't include that because that's got to be the ultimate seller's remorse car. But is there a car that you've owned that you've let go? And let's take money out of it. Let's just use emotion here, okay? Well, can I turn the question around to your alternate approach and talk about buyer's remorse? Oh, gosh. I don't know. After that TR one, I don't think I can handle it. Well, I wish I had all my former Astons,
1: the, the, the DB2 convertible with the engine out. I wish I still had my DB5. I wish I still had my DB4 GT, which did take second at Pebble oh. in 2007. I wish I still had my DB4 race car. But buyer's remorse, the one that got away. Yep. In the 70s, there was a 300SL Roadster for sale on the east side of Milwaukee with a for sale sign in the window. And I said, geez, that's such a good-looking car. Well, I called up. One of my friends who said, call this guy. He knows Mercedes Benz's. Have him go look at the car with you or take the car out to his house. So he did that. And the guy that was selling it and I drove out to this guru's house Mm -hmm. and he pronounced it mechanically superb. The recent redoing of the, I believe the oil sump was a very costly rebuild process and that had been done. But he said, you know, this thing's got these defects. It's got the hard top, but it doesn't have the soft top. And the seats have been redone in vinyl, so it's really defective. And the asking price, I think, was $5,800 firm. Yeah. <laughs> and my guru friend said, don't offer a penny over 5200 And, you know, the car was defective. Okay. It had problems. But it had the European sleek headlights.
0: Yeah.
1: It had rudge knockoff wheels. Oh, Wow. And, you know, in those days, the road and track ads would say, with great piety, never raced, never rallied. Yes. (laughs) Well, this one was alleged, whispered, to have raced at Bahamas Speedweek. So that was another defect. It had been raced.
0: Oh, yeah. Ah! Yeah. (laughs) Definitely a downside for for a collector car. Today, you pay extra for problems. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow.
1: So for one that got away, I just thought it was a really cool car. Yeah clincher came years later when i interviewed the late john wire uh, who had been with Aston's for many years when the db 4 was launched and brought Aston in their world championship in 1959 and i said what car did you benchmark the db 4 to or cars he said oh we had one specific benchmark we benchmarked it to the mercedes-benz 300 sl as being our definition of the time at the time of the best gt car in the world so it was an interesting uh, follow-on to the fact that I, I wish I had found the resources and, and the extra bucks and bought it over my friends, my guru's advice.
0: So. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a tough one. I had a neighbor up the street with a 58 Porsche Carrera Speedster that I begged my parents to buy. I was only 14. I couldn't afford it. I think the guy wanted 3000 bucks for it. Oh, that's too much money. My dad said, Our Vista Cruiser costs less than that. Are you crazy? So I'm not buying that car. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we all have those stories. And who to thunk? Who to thunk? Well, (laughs) let's move on to better times. I would love for you to share a little bit more about this current project, this new book that you wrote, the Aston Martin DB4 GT. Tell us a little bit about what got you behind this book, a little bit about it. It's an absolute collector's item for the definitive fan of Automobiles of any kind, but of course the uh, DB4 GT, which is a very special car. So walk us through a little bit of this uh, this book that you created. Well,
1: it's it's going to be an overnight success, Mark. I've uh, I've only been working on it for a couple of decades. Okay. <laughs> I acquired my DB4 GT in the early 80s and had it until 1999, and I concluded that there is just a paucity of material about how Aston's fared in the racing era. There was a lot written about the the sports racers, the DBR1s, the DBR2s as well, but not so much about the GT cars. So I started working on the project back in the 80s because I thought it'd be fun to do and that there'd be some fun stories. And uh, curiously, I decided it'd be fun to profile each chassis number. I got my manuscript to the point that I had shared it with a leading U.S. publisher who said, well, no, we want you to develop profiles of all the engineers, all the people at Aston's at the time and their dynamics. And no, we don't care about the individual chassis histories. I said, but I think the individual chassis histories are interesting, so I'm going to pull those together one way or another. My research took me to the home of the archivist for the Astronaut and Owners Club worldwide, Alan Archer in Essex, England. And I spent a long weekend as the archer's guest, going through thousands of photographs in the club archives to find suitable period photographs uh, of the DV4 GT. And uh, one evening, we had the um, uh, famous historian for the factory, the late Roger Stowers, over for dinner and, and a New Zealander. And I mentioned that uh, the part of the book was in two parts, the history of the car and how it fared against Ferrari and Jaguar in the era and uh, then a sort of a short bio on the ownership history and racing history of each chassis and even rogers said oh oh who's who's going to care about who owned the car Well, then they started pointing through my profiles of each car that that this Aston Martin went to Tommy Sopwith, whose dad built airplanes in World War two and world War one and so forth. A Sopwith Camel. Good guess. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, "Oh, bloody hell, I, bloody hell! I forgot that that guy won't own that car for a while." And it turns out these guys were poo-pooing the idea of a resume, a curriculum vitae for each chassis number. Uh-huh. So I say saying, "This is cool stuff." I'm thinking this is a family show, Mark. So yes, I'll choose yes, my it is. <laughs> Thank
0: you. Appreciate that.
1: <laughs> iTunes uh, will appreciate that too. So anyway. But that was uh, – uh, the book got going. Uh, they wanted a different book than I wanted to do, their first publisher. So it lay fallow for a while. And then one of my British friends, my co-author, told me that uh, Simon Draper of Palon Press wanted to get the Stevie 4 GT book done, that the British writer who had been engaged to do it was not coming through, and should we talk? And, of course, we talked, and the book is now presently at the binder, I'm told – And next week should be uh, shipping to the uh, publisher's office in uh, central London.
0: Just in time for Christmas, too. And Palawan Press, I'll let our listeners know who aren't familiar with that uh, website. I'll put a link on the show notes page here for Nick. You need to go and see what these guys have produced. I mean, they don't just print books. They produce works of art. This is a special special book and if you've got a family member a friend who's an automotive enthusiast that you've never been able to figure out what to buy him or her uh or and especially if they're an aston martin fan you're done i mean this will be a lifetime get it'll never leave their their home or their bookshelf it really is an incredible book
1: well their books are superbly manufactured uh there is there are a lot of uh books that are shipped to the least expensive places in the world where you can get color separation color printing uh these books are typically printed in Europe and uh, beautifully bound whether it 's their uh, and they 've done now done uh, several titles over the years, but they 're just gorgeously done, and they 're exacting in their fact checking and, um, and and they're they're pieces of of work you a while ago you interviewed my friend Jim Hazen, yes uh he interview he he reviewed the Aston Martin Ulster book done oh. by the Archer family yeah and he opened up his review with a great lady he said yes this is sort of a coffee table book it's about the size of a coffee table <laughs> yes in a small london flat
0: <laughs> yeah it is absolutely well, again, I'll make sure we have links on your show notes page so that guests can go and check this out just in time for the holidays. Absolutely brilliant. Congratulations on a fantastic project. Now, here's a very introspective question for you, Nick. If Nick was a car, what kind of car would he be and why?
1: Uh, that's a good question. That, that's a fun question, and it t- takes some abstract thinking I might mention. Yes. Uh, as you know, I'm an Aston fan. I also like other wheeled things. Mm-hmm. But I guess I'd be – an Aston Martin DB6 Vantage oh. shooting shooting brake with a five-speed manual.
0: Okay, okay. Now with the shooting brake, why the shooting brake? Well, the shooting brake is a two-door with seats in the back.
1: But then, instead of having a a trunk, a boot, it's got the sort of glassed-in area. that's just perfect, so your your dogs can jump in.
0: Ah, so, okay. <laughs> oh, room for the dogs. Got to have I mean, room for the there dogs. You have it. Especially if you're going out in the field do a little pheasant hunting or, uh right. you know, picnics or whatever you might want to do. Yeah, you've got room for all the picnic gear and everything and the dogs and the blankets. So, uh nicely done. You're the first one to be one of those vehicles. So, I knew you were a unique <laughs> guy. So, you fit the bill there. Well, Nick, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Hey, Cars Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Covercraft. I've protected my vehicles with their products for decades. Their seat gloves are semi-custom fit for cars and trucks, and their seat savers, a favorite of mine, are custom tailored to fit your seats like a glove. Work truck seat covers are tough, durable, denim-weight fabric. It's like putting a pair of rugged jeans on your truck's seats. Want to stay warm? Covercraft also offers seat heaters. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark, a Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com make sure your investments are running on all 8 cylinders or 12 or 16 securities through money concepts capital corp member finra sipic okay nick we are back from our picnic in that shooting break and we're going to be entering the last lap and i'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers so here we go what's the best automotive advice you've ever received
1: uh, pretty simple that you've probably heard from other folks buy them restored <laughs> and my friend the late raymond wolf a Duesenberg guru was the guy who first told me that and i thought that was pretty good advice and of course i've since gone on to suffer through re- restoring a couple of other cars uh... but good advice and uh
0: Yeah, it's the smartest thing, absolutely, when it comes to buying a collector car, for sure. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your success over the years?
1: Research. Hmm. As a dear friend of mine, the former fire chief of Melbourne, Australia, said, time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted.
0: Absolutely. Now, how about a resource? There's some great resources out there today, but is there one in particular you think the CarShout listeners would enjoy? Uh, This may sound really,
1: really basic, but if you have an interest in a particular car, join the club. Yes. (laughs) And I have seen people in a couple parts of the collector car world who think, oh, I'm I'm not a car club kind of a person. Um, they don't want to network and see what other bitter lessons people have learned, either about what challenges may be with a given model, or with some vendors. Not, you know, there's there's some vendors that are absolutely brilliant and worth talking to. Yeah, and absolutely. there there are a couple of other vendors that um, uh, I heard of one restoration story of a guy that was very sophisticated, but he gave a big project to a guy who had never done a car like it, and and it did not end happily. Yeah. But, uh, but there are other stories that that do end happily uh, when people do their homework. It's, it's another way of saying do your homework and get to know the club. And if you're choosing a new car, get to know your dealer and yeah. decide to make it a relationship.
0: Very wise. Very wise. Now, how about a book besides this great book that you've written? Uh, is there another book you'd like to share with our listeners you think they would enjoy? Oh, my absolute favorite
1: in the automotive world is The Certain Sound Thirty years of motor racing by John Wire.
0: Ah, nice, nice. Now, w-
1: why would this be an interesting book? Well, the the quote is like many things that John Wire would do—a little bit abstract. Wire draws from a quote from First Corinthians: "For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle?" Mm. <laughs> well, the certain sound, John Wire ran tiny race teams. And he won the world championship for Aston Martin after years of trying in 1959. He won into Porsche and their world championship. He stayed on with the Gulf Mirage team and their championship. And Brian, guys like Brian Redman and other drivers can tell wonderful stories about John Wire. That's not That's not the loop I'm going to follow. But I just think it's a fascinating story about resource allocation in a tiny company striving to perform as the best in the world on the world stage
0: yeah brian redmond was a guest here on cars yeah, and he spoke about john while we were talking and i've heard great things about that that's the first time that book's been recommended here but i'm familiar with that book so i'll remind our listeners you can find links to all these great resources nick has shared on his very own show notes page at cars slash nick candy and nick's last name is c-a-n-d-e-e that special e on the end And there's another great place on the CarJet website called Guest Recommended Books, where this book and all the past 646 guest books are listed for quick, easy clicks to buy. It's a great resource if you love great books recommended by great automotive enthusiasts. All right, we're up to the checkered flag, Nick, and this last question can be a bit of a doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, I'm sorry, just one, can't sell it to buy other stuff, so don't pick that GTO and then go out and buy ten cars <laughs> or twenty cars or two hundred cars. But money's no object today. I'll buy you anything you'd like. What would that vehicle be, and more importantly, why? If I
1: had one garage space for said car, I would make it because I've loved Aston Martins for many years. It would be a DB6 Volante Vantage that is to say, the convertible version of the DB6 with the extra wheelbase and the Vantage with the triple Weber extra horsepower engine because it has the core beauty of the Corazoria Touring-designed front. It has cabin comfort so that, curiously, it actually lets a taller person have more comfort driving the car. And the fact that it's a convertible, that the top goes down, I think is pretty cool. The, the Astons, the, that six-cylinder aluminum engine, has this robust engine no- note once it starts passing 3,000 to 4,000 RPM. And there are few richer sounds to make music in the countryside than that, except maybe a V12 of some persuasion. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think so. Oh, my goodness. Well, you're the first one to pick that car, so I'm always excited when somebody picks a unique Vehicle that hasn't been chosen here on Cars. Yeah, you picked a nice one too, and you picked one that's going to cost me a pretty penny, so um, I'm gonna have to get to work here. Not as much as
1: a DB4, curiously, because that was considered the pure form. Yes. And there are a couple of DB4 convertibles that I adore, including one called Halsey, and that's too long a story for for the podcast today, (laughs) but that's my choice.
0: Nice choice, my friend. Well, Nick, you've taken me on an awesome ride today and the Cars. Yeah, listeners, and I want to thank you for sharing. Your journey with the Cars yeah! audience. Could you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Aston Martin DB6 Volante <laughs> advantage? Nice thought. Be
1: kind. <laughs> there's a lot of hurt in the world, and simply be kind. And especially this week. Some people are traumatized. I won't make sarcastic comments about those little special snowflakes out there. But it's a matter of being kind, because there's a lot of hurt in the world, and we can fix
0: that. Yes. And, and we should. Wise words, definitely. And what's the best way for our listeners to follow what you're doing these days? I'm a reasonably public person.
1: I can be found on Facebook and LinkedIn uh, and occasionally on the Aston Martin Ono's Club website, at least the North American website. Mm-hmm. And I've always endeavored to pitch in when asked, and, and I'm able to do so.
0: And to be kind, just like he's been today by being my guest here on Cars. Yeah? I greatly appreciate it. Today's my son's 23rd birthday, so happy birthday, Blake. We'll wish him a happy birthday. Very proud of uh, my young man there. And uh, listeners, again, you can find links to everything Nick has shared with us today. Again, on the show notes page at carsyad.com. Just type Nick in the search bar. That page will pop up with links to everything. And and again, I encourage you to check out this book that he's created, written, produced. It's absolutely brilliant. Man, what an awesome gift that's going to make for somebody this holiday season. So Check it out on the links on his show notes page. Nick, thank you for being so generous today for your time and your expertise and for sharing your worldly experiences with me and with the Cars Yeah listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Mark, thank you so much for having me. Cars, yeah! You <laughs> bet. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah.